Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. This is the word of God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we bow in your holy presence this morning. We are so grateful for being able to be here with other believers uh, to worship you and to look into your holy word. We are thankful for these ancient words that are ever true, that instruct us in our Christian pathway and help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to be receptive to your word today. We know that our lives do need changing And we need to be conformed more to the image of your Son. Help us not to grieve the Spirit in our lives, but allow him to work, that we may be more effective in our Christian witness. We ask these things and commend ourselves to you for this time before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're... Very happy to see everyone that's come this morning. It's nice to see smiling faces. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've been richly blessed by the ministry of the Word thus far on this wonderful book of Ephesians. It's been very practical, and this section that we're looking at today is very much where they used to say shoe leather meets the road uh, in terms of how we should live our lives. It deals with the practical life of a genuine believer who's been transformed by the gospel. A new birth has taken place, and they have been changed. The Holy Spirit has indwelled them, and now they have the power to live for God. If you look around today, especially if you search, you know, surf the internet, there are many programs for self-improvement. Getting rid of bad habits and addiction, some are helpful, Many are not. But I want to tell you that the only program that really works is the gospel. That is the radical transformation that will change lives. And I've seen it in my experience. I've seen drunkards that could not stay away from drink come to Christ, put their faith in him. The Holy Spirit entered into them. 
and they were able to break the bondage of that addiction. How wonderful it is to see God at work. Now, Jeff last week, Jeff Ullman, had a really nice title for his message. In fact, I had it on mine, so I thought I'd better change it for something new (laughs) today. He said, out with the old and in with the new, and that's exactly what this is. Our behavior in uh, everyday life should reflect that we're Christians, that we've put on the new man. The way we act should show that we have a new standing in Christ. We're a new creation, we have new life, and we should be transformed in our everyday interactions with others. Notice that this little section that we've just read, Sandy read, has the word therefore starting this section. In other words, because of this new standing, what should we do? So as per the outline that you've got in your bulletin, our first practical admonition is to put away falsehood. In other words, put away lying and put on truthfulness. So this first slide is about falsehood. Now, notice, I'm talking about lying. I'm not talking about misspeaking. I'm not talking about being truth-challenged. I'm talking about lying. It's amazing to me, when you listen to the news today, how people sugarcoat things that are so obvious and make them sound much less onerous than they really are. But this is really, falsehood is really being untruthful. And there are at least three ways in which we can be untruthful, and probably there are others, but these are the three that came to my mind most prominently. And you'll notice them on this slide. First one is outright lying. The second one is putting a slant on facts that creates impressions that are not correct. And then the third one is partial truth versus the whole story. Now, I find it quite helpful to me. I don't know about you, but um, I love the Old Testament stories. They're wonderful because they have such great insights as to how people behaved and acted and what human nature is like and how God worked with individuals. Outright lying. Remember in Genesis 37 when Isaac, the old man, was nearly blind and he was going to bless his sons? And Jacob wanted to supplant his brother and get the blessing from Esau. Esau was the older one. He should have got the blessing. But Jacob wanted to get that blessing. And to do that, Jacob lied to his father. It was an outright lie. You know what he said in Genesis 27 and 19? He said, I am Esau, your firstborn. The old man was confused. He said, the voice is the voice of Jacob. But of course, the goat skins on the back of his hands and on his neck, and he had his father feel that. He said, you're hairy like Esau, so you must be Esau. And he blessed him. This was an outright lie. I think it's pretty pathetic that Rebecca was the one that was instigating all of this. That was his mother. That's a terrible thing to encourage lying in a child. Uh, I'm thinking about us raising young children. Now, of course, Jacob at this point was not a child. He was a grown man and wanted the blessing from his father. And yet, this was an outright lie. I am Esau, your firstborn. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's a lie. And we should avoid lying. And I think for the most part, Christians are pretty good at trying to avoid this error. The second one, though, is a little bit more difficult. Putting a slant on facts that create wrong impressions. 
Remember when the sons of Jacob went after Joseph? Genesis 27, they sent the coat of many colors and brought it to Jacob and said, we found this coat. Is this your son's coat or not? It was a goat, it was a coat that was dipped in goat's blood. Now these brothers knew full well, they had just finished selling Joseph to the Midianites who then subsequently sold him to Egypt. And so they knew that they were creating the wrong impression. And poor Jacob he suffered tremendously as he grieved for his son because he said, surely some wild beast has tore him and killed him. His coat that I gave him is, dipped, is, is covered in blood. And they created the wrong impression. So we need to be careful that when we're telling something or relaying information, that we don't put deliberate slant on items that create the wrong impression. But the last one is partial truth versus the whole story. And of course, this immediately came to mind in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they sold the land and they came to the apostles and said, we got this much for the land here, we're going to give it to you. But in reality, they got much more for the land and they had kept back a portion for themselves. So there was nothing wrong with them selling the land or not selling it. Nothing wrong with them keeping back part of the money. But the fact is, they lied about what they did. It was only partially true. They had sold it, yes, but they had sold it for less than they said. And in fact, uh, Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so we should speak truth in whatever, in whatever communication we have, whether it be verbally, whether it be in written communication, Let's do that because truth promotes unity. A Christian should be absolutely trustworthy. Whatever he or she says, we should be able to count on it. If we're not truthful, don't try to evangelize. Don't speak of Christianity. It will drive others away from the gospel. What we do in real life, the way we act, the way we interact with others, speak far louder than anything you can say. And so we need to be truthful. Notice that our neighbor is mentioned, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This is likely referring to fellow Christians because it then says, we are members one of another. What would it be like in the human body if the eye sent false messages to the brain? Can you imagine what that would do to us? We wouldn't even know when danger is approaching. If you're being untruthful with other believers, you're destroying the unity of the church. Don't do it. However, in a broader sense, our truthfulness should be evident to everyone, not just believers. Everybody that interacts with us should say, that person you can count on. They have integrity. If they tell you something, it's good. You can bank on it. This, if we do this, especially in our body of believers, this will get rid of confusion and misinformation in the body of Christ. Let's face it, we, we have enough real problems as it is without manufacturing more by being untruthful. So I would just encourage you, let us be truthful. Let's speak with others in a fully transparent way and try to be as accurate as we can. Now the second admonition, and I've 
this is a big one, is anger. And this chart on anger, I've put five things down. I'm sure you're looking at it right now. Um, Many of us struggle with this problem, and uh, speaker included. And most of the time, it's a reaction to personal wrongs when we feel that the circumstances are unjust, unfair, or un- unfair or uncalled for. And sometimes the reaction can be very sudden and very intense. So let's look at the instruction given us in verse 26, 27 regarding anger. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So I've tried to capture five points that I'd like to make about anger. And again, if you start looking, doing a little bit of research on anger, um, I went down the vortex of psychobabble for a while and I said, this is not helpful. None of this stuff is helping me at all. Let's, let's stick to what God says about anger. The first point is it's a difficult emotion to manage. I was on a flight one time, sitting beside a guy, um, and we got to talking, and he turned out he was an engineer also, and he worked for NASA in the space program. And he, This was in the late 70s. And he worked on the Apollo space program, and in fact, he was part of the control design team for the F-1 engine for the Apollo space program. And I was very interested in this, so we had a great discussion. Five of those engines were used on the big Saturn rocket, and he was telling me how difficult it was to manage that engine. He said something I never forgot. He said, The real challenge is, he said, once you light it, he said, how do you control it? He said, controlling it is extremely difficult. You know, there's a thunderous explosion. The earth shakes. All the electronics in the modules that are controlling the engines are being severely stressed. He said, once you light it, you can't put it out. It's very difficult to put it out. So this is a lot like anger. It has explosive power. And we really need to be careful that we don't let this get away on us. Now, the second point I'm making here is sometimes anger is justified, and it is appropriate. And we can be angry and not sin. That's what the verse says. It's justified when the truth of God is being attacked or the work of Christ is ridiculed. And this should call for righteous indignation on our part. Even in that circumstance, though, we need to control anger and our response should be appropriate. As our verse says, be angry and sin not. A good example of this, once again, let's just look at what the scriptures say, is our Lord's actions in the temple. Remember when he came in and saw the desecration of the holy place? He was incensed. He was angry. And he made a small whip out of cords, it says, and he, went, he ran about in that place, knocking over the, the, the tables of the money changers and all these people selling animals for sacrifice for a prophet. And he drove them out and cleansed the place. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers in Matthew 21. 
You know, the high priest was not very happy with that action because he was getting a cut from what was happening in the court of the temple. And so the anger of Jesus Christ on this occasion was fully justified and righteous. Here's a good prayer to think about. Someone has said, Lord, if I'm going to be angry, make me angry about the things that make you angry. That's a good rule of thumb. The third point is most often the anger that we exhibit is unjustified. And it leads to real big problems. Uh, in in um, James chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Another verse, Proverbs 29, 22, An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. Now, there uh, are numerous admonitions to, in the scriptures to control our temper and avoid anger if at all possible. Not only does it damage relationships, but the anger inflicts injury on others. And it can also deprive us of blessing. I'd like to, that last point I'd like you to think about just a little bit with me. Deprive us of blessing. A good example in the Old Testament is Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings chapter 5. I love this story. Remember the little maid that was taken captive from Israel? Naaman was a big general in the Syrian army. Very important guy. There's a little word, but. But. He was a leper. Maybe he hid it, but he had leprosy. And so the little maid told her mistress, she said, well, if he would just go to the prophet that's in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman goes to the king of Syria and says, will you send me? To Israel, see if I can get some help. So he comes to the king of Israel with all of his entourage, tons of money, 10 changes of raiment, and the king of Israel has a fit, to put it mildly, because he thinks this is a ruse to create a conflict between the two nations. He said, am I God? Can I make this man well? Can I, can I heal him? But the prophet that was in Samaria heard about this incident And he said, send him to me, send him to me. And Naaman, he comes down to see the prophet in Samaria. And again, the entourage arrives outside the doorway. And the prophet doesn't even come outside. He just sends a message to him and says, go wash in Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. Naaman was absolutely furious. He flew into a rage, it says. And he said, I'm not going to go down to that dirty Jordan River Aren't Abana and Farfar, the rivers in my country, cleaner than that one? I'm not going down there. He was furious, and he went away in a rage. Well, the servants of Naaman, they started to talk to him mildly and calmly and say, look at Naaman, or if, you, if, if the prophet had asked you to do some big thing, like give him all this money in, if he had asked you to do something really big, you would have done it. That all he's saying to you is, go wash in the Jordan, and you'll be clean. Well, you know, Naaman calmed down, and Naaman finally humbled himself, and he went to the Jordan. He dipped himself as he was told in the river, and what happened? Instant healing, and Naaman was overjoyed. You see how my point is this, that 
Naaman would have deprived himself of infinite blessing here through uncontrolled anger. And sometimes when that happens in our lives, the same thing happens to us. Sometimes we say things in anger that we wish we could retract. It might feel real good at the time, but later you'll regret it. How long will it take to repair the relationship once that hurtful thing is said? And one of the quickest ways to destroy unity among believers is to have Christians angry with one another. We must guard against this. So if you feel anger rising, just take a deep breath. If possible, remove yourself from the situation. It's better to walk away than to explode in a rage. Also, if faced with anger with someone else, try to diffuse the situation with a calm response. I love this verse. I thought of it often in my career. Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. We should strive for patient self-control, as I've tried to highlight in your bulletin and on this chart, in all circumstances. Our fourth point, just to move along real quickly here, is harbored anger can be the devil's playground. You see what it says there? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why does it say that? The reason is, is that anger, if harbored, leads to resentment. Growing bitterness, and you know what happens? There's an increasing desire to get revenge. That's where sin is ready, waiting to pounce. Look no further than Cain. The first two boys, first family in the Bible. Remember Cain? His offering wasn't accepted because he didn't come in the right way, and he was furious, he was angry. And the Lord himself reasoned with him. He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not well, what does he say? Sin is crouching at the door, just like a leopard or a lion or some animal like that that crouches with its muscles all tensed. As soon as the time is right, it pounces. And that's what happened to Cain. Cain was harboring disaster, anger in his heart, and he had great resentment against Abel. You notice it was the next day or whatever it was in the field when he met Abel that he killed him. So that was building. So that's why it says, don't let anger fester. Get rid of it. Deal with it. A root of bitterness can grow, and the devil is all too happy to fan the flames of resentment. The last point here is our fifth point is to make things right if anger has hurt others. Apologize and ask for forgiveness. This will free you from guilt and bring peace. And, and one thing I want you to remember is you've done the right thing, even if the other party does not respond in the way you would like. God will honor you for doing that. So many problems would be solved if people would humble themselves and acknowledge that they have done wrong. In Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, there's a whole section on anger. And in that section it says, so if you're going to offer a gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. In other words, the Lord doesn't want your worship. If you're harboring anger and resentment against another believer, make it right. And then come in worship. This is a sobering thought. 
So we need to control anger in our lives. And really, I've just touched the surface of anger. There's so much in the scriptures about anger. You could make a whole sermon out of this, but we're going to move on. And don't worry, I've spent a lot of time on anger, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on some of these other points. The third point in your bulletin and the next slide is stealing. How inappropriate this is for a Christian to steal. It's morally wrong. Even unsaved people know this. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that Judas was a thief. He stole from the general fund. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Imagine doing that when you're one of the 12 trusted disciples in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. My conclusion is stealing happens at the highest levels. How true that is. Stealing can take many forms. Money, time, intellectual property, to name a few. And many white-collar crimes involved theft. Sometimes people in very high positions succumb to the temptation to skim off the top. Invariably, however, the best plans to conceal all this come to light and they're caught. We're admonished to do honest work with our own hands. In other words, don't coast along living off somebody else and their prosperity. What, why is the Christian to do this? So he can share with others that have need. And this is precisely the opposite of stealing. That's what I like about this passage is it isn't just don't do this, 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 and this. Rather, replace it with this, this, and this. So stealing is to be replaced with good, honest, hard work. We're not to be lazy. Be diligent. Work hard. And make ends meet if you can. Now, I realize not everybody's situation is different. And sometimes we do need help. And we're appreciative when we get it. But can I just suggest to you, don't wait too long before you decide how you're going to provide for yourself. Wasted youth squanders the most productive years in a person's life. It's not so much the vocation you choose, but your consistent working to provide for yourself and then be able to help others. When you help others, it'll bring great blessing to you. To assist another struggling Christian when they're having trouble and difficulty pleases the Lord. And every, everything that is done in that arena is recorded in heaven. The books are kept. And when the judgment seat of Christ arrives, all of those things you've probably forgotten that you have done for other believers, those will all be reviewed. And the Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The day is coming when all those sacrifices will be rewarded. So we're admonished to not steal, but rather um, work to be able to support others. Now, Zacchaeus in Luke 19, I mentioned him on the on this slide. I think he's a perfect example of someone who became a Christian and there was a great transformation. As a tax collector, he skimmed off the top all the time. They were known for that. And what does Zacchaeus do? What he said was, once he became a Christian, he said, I'm going to restore fourfold to those that I've taken money from. And then he said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. This is truly sharing 
with someone in need. I like this, you know, because um, Zacchaeus was a short little man. But the short little man did big things when he came to know Jesus as Savior. And we can do the same. The next slide uh, and the next item in your bulletin is corrupting talk. And this refers possibly to any type of conversation that's frivolous, idle, empty, or worthless. And it, of course, also includes immoral, suggestive talk, profanity. However, more specifically in chapter 5, Paul deals with obscene and vile language. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So when you engage like in this type of conversation with other people, especially fellow Christians you are speaking with, the pollution you're sharing with that individual now spreads. And you have instilled thoughts that are not going to build up that person, but possibly stumble them. Isn't it interesting? I don't know about you, but it's these kind of conversations which aren't so good that I tend to remember. And the other types of conversation that are edifying and build me up, I have trouble remembering those. Why is that? It's because the devil's at work. And he knows that I'll take that item that I have said to someone else and I shouldn't be even talking about that. He's taking that and he's working on it in their hearts and bringing it to their minds. The devil makes sure that we readily bring to mind corruption. So you know why? So we can imagine even worse things. So we should not do this. We need to speak things that are good for building up and give grace to those that hear and strengthen one another with wholesome conversation. And I can look back in my life to people that have dialogued with me that I've known, and they've been extremely helpful with good, wholesome conversation, which has, which has strengthened me as a believer and encouraged me when I needed it. You could have a good and positive influence on others as well. We should lead by example. I thought of the verse in Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So a good word spoken to another Christian will build them up, stabilize, strengthen, encourage them. And this should be our objective. Use wisdom, discernment, and discretion so that what you say is relevant and helpful. Sometimes it's just a short statement, but it can be very impactful. Proverbs 25 and 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken. So we should not engage in corrupting talk. Let's edify one another and build one another up. The next verse, the next slide as well, it talks about grieving the Spirit of God. And you notice that's sort of interjected in the center of our passage. But let's keep in mind that when we grieve the Spirit of God through any of the foregoing, there's also a list afterwards of items that will grieve the Spirit of God in our lives. But I, I just want to mention one very brief thing about grieving the Spirit. And this uh, I found very helpful to myself Spurgeon, the famous preacher from England, said this about grieving. It doesn't say, the text doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is angry. It says he's grieved. 
Spurgeon says this, I am sure that most of you would grieve if you thought you were grieving someone else. You perhaps wouldn't care as much if you made them angry without a cause, or, but to grieve them, even though it was without a cause and without intention perhaps, would nevertheless cause you distress of heart. And you would not rest until that grief had been subsided, till you had made some explanation or apology, and had done your best to allay the smart and take away the grief. I think that's very touching that the word is grieved. The indwelling spirit is deeply grieved when we sin. Bad behavior like lying, getting angry when uncalled for, stealing, corrupting conversation. We need to confess our sin and seek forgiveness. In this way, fellowship can be restored with heaven and the Spirit can, the Holy Spirit within us can once again guide us and encourage us in our Christian pathway. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 19 says, quench not the Spirit. So the Spirit obviously desires to work in our lives and to have his power manifest in how we act and behave. The Spirit's like a fire whose flame we want to be careful not to quench or extinguish. The Holy Spirit wants to intensify the heat of his presence among us, to inflame our hearts and fill us with the warmth of his indwelling power. So don't grieve him with bad behavior, where he takes a back seat and says, then I'll let the old person take over, versus the power that I can give you to live the new man. And we're still, we need to change course. Let's not, let's not maintain the old course into these sinful things when he brings conviction into our lives. So much more could be said about grieving the spirit, but that will suffice for now. Now, point number five in your outline is a list of items, a grouping of things that do grieve the spirit of God as well as the previous four. I, uh, I'm indebted to... Um, our esteemed brother William McDonald, in his commentary, because there are some um, differences of opinion as to what these words actually mean. So we won't get into all that, but he gave a very nice little summary, I thought, of his sort of take on this list. And we're not going to go through all of these, but I want you to notice what they are. Bitterness. He said, unwilling to forgive, smoldering, harsh feelings, wrath, bursts of rage, anger in the extreme. Anger, we've talked about this, being annoyed, animosity, displeasure. Clamor, shouting down opponents, loud outcries of anger. Evil speaking, slander, abuseless speech. Malice, that word even sounds bad, doesn't it? Malice. Wishing evil on others, spiteful and mean. Now, I'd like you to notice something in this list that many of these items are closely related to anger itself, which is mentioned in the list. Wrath, clamor, malice, bitterness, they're all tied in with anger. They're all byproducts which seem to predominate Paul's admonition to the Ephesian saints. I was thinking, I was wondering, so why is there such a focus on anger in this passage? 
if you look at it in its totality. Perhaps this is because Paul experienced the riot in Ephesus over the goddess Artemis. Remember, they were shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That was the same god, the the goddess Artemis. Remember Demetrius, the silversmith in Ephesus? He stirred up all the other craftsmen. They probably had a guild of craftsmen that were making images and mementos, worship items for Diana, for Artemis. And he was incensed at the impact of Paul's preaching and what it was going to do to their business. It was going to destroy them. And so all the people became enraged. If you look back in Acts chapter 19, all the people, it says they became enraged and they dragged Paul's companions into the theater. It seems like the Ephesians had trouble with anger. Talk about clamor. This was like a, I think, if I recall correctly, I think they shouted, was it for two hours? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they were just, were incensed that Paul was preaching the gospel that would have changed lives and would have affected their livelihood. So perhaps that is why, I don't know for sure, but perhaps that is why this is emphasized so much. So what should we be doing? Instead of that long list of items, which gets, kind of gets worse as you go down, we should focus on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Remember that the Lord has shown these wonderful attributes to us. If we've been loved so deeply, forgiven of so much, and experienced such kindness from the Lord in our own lives, that it's incumbent on us to show these same attributes to others. And does that build unity? Does that build fellowship and strong sense of love and care and devotion one for another if we do these things. And I'm very happy to say that for the most part, Christians do demonstrate this. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. We should help one another and encourage one another to do these things and to serve the Lord in a way that we can avoid all these things that cause problems and instead move to those that help build us up. Now, I I hope these thoughts encourage you to put off the old ways. Put on the new ones. Remember the day of redemption is coming when these struggles will be past. Sin will be gone forever and we will be made perfect. What a day that will be. And I... Rejoice to think of the time when we will be made perfect and all of these problems that occasionally affect us personally, they'll be gone and we will be made perfect in his presence. Another point of encouragement before I close here is don't agonize over past failures. If things have been made right, all is well. The Lord has forgiven us and we can move on with a sense of renewal. You know, the devil just loves to remind us of all of our shortcomings and failures where I blew that, I I missed it here, I, I reacted inappropriately there. Don't relive them. Don't waste time on past events that you cannot change. Leave them behind. Leave them with the Lord. They've been made right. Press on to serve the Lord 
and to let the Spirit of God be your guide. Don't grieve him. Let him work in your life. And that, you will find, will bring immense and wonderful blessing. Let's pray. Could you stand with me, please? Father, we pause just now at the conclusion of our passage of Scripture, how immensely practical this is, and we know that as we review this list, we identify within our own experience uh, that we have failed in all of these items, and that we need to be reminded that uh, we are to put on the new man. Help us to serve the Lord more acceptably, that with kindness and gentleness, with tenderheartedness, forgiving one another, we might move forward and we might demonstrate that our lives have been totally changed. Help us to put on these new behaviors and above all, that the Spirit of God might work in our lives to strengthen and encourage us and edify us as we go forward. Encourage us, we do pray. We are thankful for every Christian here. For those that do not know Christ, we pray that they might trust Him, that they might have that great blessing of knowing their sins are forgiven and that they can uh, move forward with a changed life. We ask these things and give thanks for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.